So hello, I'm Beth Fisher Yoshida. I'm a professor of practice and program director of the Negotiation and Conflict Resolution Program at Columbia University in the city of New York. And I have a new book coming out, which is New Story, New Power, Woman's Guide to Negotiation. And this is the New Story, New Power podcast. And it's really focused on women and negotiation topics that I'm very passionate about. And I'm fortunate enough today to have a colleague, Maggie Palmer, on. And Maggie started Pep Talk Her maybe four or five years ago, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask Maggie to give a little bit more of a fuller introduction of who she is and how she got into this particular work that she's doing now. So Maggie, I'll just give you the floor for more of an introduction. Thanks, Beth. I'm so excited to be reconnecting and having this conversation about negotiation. It's something that I'm super passionate about. Uh, so quick, quick background. My, I, I spent 15 years as a journalist and a foreign correspondent. Originally, I'm Australian, hence my thick accent. <laughs> um, but I worked as a journalist all around the world um, in London for the BBC World, the CNBC. Um, I was with the Financial Times here in New York City before founding um, Pep Talk Her, a company that's really focused on closing that gender gap, which we know exists from the pay perspective from leadership position perspective and so many other um, biases in between that, that women face in the workforce. And so I'm really passionate about supporting women um, to get promoted quicker and to get paid more money, basically. Great. So uh, can you tell us just a couple of the kinds of activities that Pep Talk Her does to give the audience a chance to understand that? Yeah, of course. So we built an app, uh, the Pep Talk Her app. It's totally free to download. You can check it out on all of the app stores. Um, and basically, Beth, it's kind of like a Fitbit, but for your career. So instead of tracking your steps or your workouts, it kind of tracks your successes and your accomplishments at work because I don't know about you, Beth, but like, I honestly couldn't even tell you what I had for dinner last week on Tuesday, let alone, you know, what I did in the workplace in March or in June or in January, you know, like our brains are full with a lot of information. And so the Pet Talker app was really developed to sort of be a dossier of all of your achievements so that if you enter a success or a win, maybe once a week, once a month, by the end of the year, all of a sudden you've got 10, 20, 30 successful um, pieces of data that you can then use to advocate for yourself for a promotion or a pay increase. So we built that app a couple of years ago. We launched it at an event with Vogue, which was super exciting. Um, so we have that, which supports people. We have a heap of free resources that people can check out. Um, peptalker.com forward slash pay me more is a good one. That's a cheat sheet. But then, you know, Beth, we run a heap of group coaching programs, um, executive coaching, uh, and, you know, online courses to really support people with that negotiation piece when it comes to how do you navigate those conversations around pay, around promotion, and frankly, around office politics as well. That's great. I love the fact that your app tracks little yes. successes because we do forget. And that's part of what uh, my work is about as well is changing the narrative, changing the story. So if we have a story where we say, you know, I didn't negotiate well and I didn't get what I wanted, you forget all of the other data points that show the successes. So if you just start to collect them, suddenly you have this tremendous collection. So I wanted to ask you then, what do you think for your own negotiation in your work, at home, wherever you are, what are some of the key things that you take away that is really important for you in a negotiation? Yeah, so it's interesting, Beth, when I reflect on like, what is the definition of negotiation? If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have told you that negotiation is conflict. 
because that's what I was raised to believe. You know, like when I was a teenager, my experience of negotiating was really fighting with my dad to be ungrounded, to be allowed to go to parties. You know, so I have these sort of, you know, my memories of negotiation are of arguments. And I think a lot of us think in our heads that a negotiation is an argument or a conflict or it's a fight, you know. But actually, as you know better than I do, Beth, when you actually look at the technical definition of negotiation in the dictionary, it's really just two parties trying to find an agreement. Like, that's what it is. So negotiation really is a conversation, you know, and I would love for everyone listening today to be able to reframe their mindset around negotiation. It doesn't have to be, you know, a war zone. It doesn't have to be full on conflict. It's really just, I want something. They want something let's have a conversation and figure out like what is the give and take to find an outcome that hopefully, you know, works for the both of us. So like for me, I've had to do a lot of work, Beth, around rewiring the patterns, frankly, that I had around negotiating from early in my childhood. Um, Because I think, you know, even earlier in my career, honestly, when it was came to pay raise conversations, I didn't realize that, you know, it could just be a chat and then you didn't have to be super nervous about it. And we have about 60,000 professional women in the Pep Talker community. And Beth, I can't tell you how many times they say to me, oh, Maggie, you know, I don't want to ask for a raise because they'll think I'm high maintenance or I don't want to negotiate my salary because they'll think I'm a bitch, you know? And I think, and the thing is with women, when it comes to negotiation, unfortunately, the rules are different. Um, because of something that's called the backlash penalty, which I know you, you know, you've done a lot of research into as well. So the rules of engagement are different. I wish that we lived in a totally equitable world. Um, but according to the United Nations, we're, we're about 100 to 200 years away from that still. So in the meantime, it's important that everyone understands the rules of engagement and the extra challenges that women face when it comes to negotiating in the workplace, because they are different. You know, I wish I wish it was perfect and it was all fair and happy families, but that's just not the case. And I, I mean, you found that in your research as well, haven't you, Beth? Yeah. So it's interesting that um, a few weeks ago I was talking to somebody and he said to me, really, there's still an issue with women in negotiation? I said, yes. Yes. But that. So the research is contradictory that some people say, you know what? Women have made advances. It's not as big a deal anymore. The gap is closing and so on. Women should be assertive. Women are assertive and, and there. And then people say, well, yes, women can be assertive, but however, there is the backlash and so on. And then some people say, well, don't put the onus on the woman that she has to make changes and that she has to change her behavior and her mindset and everything else. And I think it's really a combination. So I think, yes, women need to figure out who they want to be as a negotiator and how do they get there? What are the skills they need? What are the concepts they need? What's that self-talk that has to go on in their heads that has to prepare them? But then the conditions, the systems, the workplace, the home place, everything has to change in order to receive those different behaviors. Because if you're encouraging women to have different behaviors, but then you're punishing them for having those different behaviors, there's, there's a, you know, what, what do we do here? That's a dilemma. How do we manage that? That's not going to work to anybody's advantage in that way, for sure. Yeah, and it is one of those, it's one of those challenging things because, you know, there's a lot of talk around, like, we don't change women and we shouldn't have to change. And I agree with that. Like, I agree, we shouldn't have to change. We shouldn't even have to have this conversation. Equally, 
the reality is that it is different. And we know that men and women who are leaders treat women differently when we negotiate, you know, from the research. And so it's that, it's that conundrum, isn't it? Of like, you, you shouldn't have to change the way you are and you can negotiate and you can lead in the way that is authentic to you. But also be aware that if you're looking to get the best outcome when it comes to salary, for example, I think being conscious and aware of some of these factors that may or may not come into play is helpful because it helps you to then navigate that to a greater success for you. Because what I want is all your listeners to be able to advocate for themselves and navigate a negotiation to get the best possible outcome. You know, and if that means being aware of some of Beth re- Beth's research and her colleagues' research, then I think that's a good thing because you're going to be more prepared. And we know that whether you're a man, whether you identify as male, female, or otherwise, if you're prepared ahead of negotiations, your outcomes are always significantly better. Yeah. So I love that you brought up being prepared and preparation. It's one of my big things. So tell me something. What is one typical thing you might do in general to prepare for a negotiation? And then, of course, there might be things you do special for depending on the type of the negotiation that it is. Yeah. So, you know, preparation is not sexy. It's not like super exciting, but it works, you know, and it's just it's such a powerful tool. And it's funny, you know, literally, Beth, earlier this week, I had a text from one of my best friends in New York City. And she was like, hey, um, I'm negotiating my salary this week. What should I do? And I was like, okay, well, like, how long is a piece of string? How long have we got? And she's like, oh, it's in the morning. And I was like, okay, can we delay that? Because actually, you know, that's not enough time, really. It's fine if you're looking for a $500 a year pay increase or maybe a thousand bucks a year, that's fine. You'll be fine. It's all good. If you want a significant jump, like just kind of texting a friend out of the blue six hours before the negotiation, that's not really enough time for a considered, very thought through, thoughtful um, negotiation preparation. So a lot of people think, Beth, when they're going into a negotiation, there's a lot of unknowns. Well, you know, I don't know the budget. I don't know their economic situation. I don't know the bonus structure. Okay. There's a lot, there is a lot that you don't know, but there's actually more than you would think that you do know, you know, because in any, in any negotiation, there's really only ever three outcomes, right? So let's, let's use salary negotiation. Cause that's, that's something that I talk about a lot. If I go in and ask for a pay increase, they can either say yes, they can say no, or they can say maybe, you know, somewhere in between. Those are really the three outcomes that we can prepare for. And so literally something that I do, again, Beth, it's not sexy, not super exciting, but I get a sheet of paper or a word or a, you know, a Google doc. And I just write down yes, no, maybe. And this is my, this is my dream outcome. Um, this is the, the wordage and the phraseology that I'm going to use if they say no. If they say yes, this is the, this is the verbiage I'm going to use. If they say maybe, this is how I'm going to pivot that conversation. These are the questions I'm going to ask ahead of time. So I actually prepare that in advance. And then I typically will get um, my partner, maybe my dad or a friend to actually run through a mock negotiation for me. So I will always ask that person to be very harsh and to give me the worst possible scenario. Because the way I see it, if I'm prepared for the worst scenario, anything better than that is kind of a bonus. And it's funny when we think about the way our mind responds and our body viscerally responds in stressful situations, we can actually trick our brains, right? So if we do a mock negotiation ahead of time, our brains don't always know that that was a pretend situation. So we actually prepare our body um, to be able to better respond and perhaps have a better poker face when you're in the real deal situation. 
right? So some of my clients, Beth, will tell me that they, you know, break out in a sweat or maybe like they get really red in the cheek when they're nervous in before a negotiation. So the more you can actually practice, you're sort of training your body to get used to that feeling of stress, of a little bit of anxiety. And then every time that you practice, that stress and anxiety will dissipate somewhat. Um, so yeah, I think practice makes perfect. It's so boring, I know, but it truly makes a difference. It truly does. Yeah, it's really funny you said that. So when you call uh, the you know, the yes, the no, and the maybe, yeah, call like scenario planning, I'm saying, okay, if they say this, what do I do? And it's really good, I agree, to have that training of a reaction in there. And yes. then you talk about like physically having that practice and also the neurosciences have shown us that our brains also record those kinds of conversations and those kinds of habits. So the more you do something, the deeper, like the groove in there for that. And then the more of a habit it becomes. So if you want to change the habit, which typically in a negotiation, when somebody says, no, can't do that, then it stops, right? And people like a deer in the headlights. What do you do? Because you have to think the alternatives. But I'm wondering, you know, for me, it's not only salary, right? And I think that especially with younger and younger generations of people, different types of workplace benefits are important to them. For example, some people may say it's only about money. Other people may say, well, yes, of course, I would like to get more money. However, if I get a title, that means something to me. Or if I'm able to supervise somebody else, or if they have professional development opportunities. So what are some of the things you might work with women about? how they expand that concept of compensation. Yeah, hundred percent. So typically when we're um, working with clients to prepare for a salary negotiation, typically to start with, we're looking to maximize compensation. So we're looking for the dollars and cents, you know, so we're looking for a great base. We're looking for um, a guaranteed bonus or a performance-based bonus, um, potentially as well as, as that, if it's like a revenue generating role, we're also looking for, um, you know, commission incentives as well. Um, and then potentially there's a sign-on bonus. If, if you're leaving one company where maybe you had equity and you, you know, some of that has invested and you're going to a new company, we want to make sure that there's, you know, the, the, the person that we're working with isn't out of pocket. So there's all that stuff. Yes. But to your point, Beth, the second thing that we look at are really those non-monetary benefits, right? Non-monetary compensation. So things like to your point, maybe a four day week or three days working remote or, you know, excellent healthcare or seven weeks of annual leave, for example, or, you know, maybe a stipend to be able to fit out your home office, car parking, um, salary sacrificing so that you can pay for childcare, pre-tax, all of those sorts of things. They're, they're significant. And to your point, you know, like a stipend for professional development, whether you use that to do a short course at Columbia, whether you use that for a pep talker program, whether you ask them to pay for your executive coach. There's all sorts of things that actually you have to think quite strategically about it, right, Beth? So, you know, salary comes from one line item in the budget, but there's typically a different budget line for professional development. There's a different budget line for travel. So a lot of my clients will negotiate business class travel for flights more than five hours, for example. And that comes out of the travel budget, right? So it often, some of these benefits, are, it's actually of no consequence often to your manager or HR to offer them to you because they come out of different line items in the budget. So that's where, again, doing that preparation ahead of time is very, very valuable. And for some of our listeners, things like parental leave might be important as well. So having an understanding of that beforehand, um, just being really clear on, on what those benefits. And again, writing all of those things down ahead of time 
um, can be helpful so that you can pivot that conversation and negotiation in a more natural way, right? Because they might, you might, they might send you an offer or give you an offer in person. And you're thinking, you're looking at the list thinking, wow, they've actually already offered me 90% of what I want. Where am I going to go to? Okay. Let's talk about short courses. Let's talk about, you know, getting the Christmas new year holiday off all those sorts of things that you can consider as well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you mentioned something earlier too that uh, some of the women you talk to say, well, I don't want to ask for too much. I don't mm-hmm. want to ask for a raise because then they'll think I'm high maintenance. Yeah. And I want to just flip that around and say, well, what if you don't ask? What are they going to think about you for not advocating for yourself? So okay. if you're in a situation where you need to somehow be out in the public and advocate for the organization that you're with, I'm going to think, well, if you're not advocating for yourself, how do I know you're going to stand up and advocate for our organization or for advocate for your product or your team or something like that? So I think there are a lot of other implications for that. And just to change that story in your head about what does it mean to advocate reasonably? What does it mean to advocate for yourself in a different situation? And don't forget as well, like, you know, that first offer when you're being offered a job or when you're offered a big leap, that's often, not always, but sometimes that's the most leverage that you will ever have in the organization. So typically that first negotiation is among the most important because if there's, for example, built-in CPI or inflation incremental increases in your salary, it's always going to be based on that that initial offer that you take, right? So I, I just, I don't want you to forget about that because don't, don't think, oh, you know, I'll ask more for next year. Like, ask for it now because who knows what the economic situation is going to be next year. You know, a lot of people thought, oh, I'll just wait. And then the pandemic hit, you know? So there's always, and again, to your point, you've got to do it reasonably, Beth. We want to, we want it to be a win for both parties, preferably. Um, but I, I do think like, don't forget that that first negotiation, when you change jobs or when you go into an organization, it can often be among the most important. That's such a good point, Maggie, because it is true that that's your starting point. That's the yeah. base. Whatever else yeah. happens after that is based on that first initial agreement after that first negotiation. So, And true. just to share a story super quickly, Beth, it just came to mind with something that you shared. Um, I had a client and she was, I met her about six months ago and she said, oh, you know, I can't ask for a raise. And I said, oh, why not? She said, well, because I did that once and it didn't work. And I was like, oh, tell me about that. She goes, yeah, six years ago, I asked for a pay increase and they said, no, I said, oh, okay. And then what happened? She's like, well, nothing. I just like, I haven't asked and I haven't had a raise for six years, mm-hmm. you know? And if we think about average inflation of let's call it 3% for easy mathematics, you know, three times six, that's 18% that her salary has effectively slid backwards because she didn't ask for a pay increase putting aside the fact that inflation has been bananas the past few years. So that's the thing. If you actually don't get those increases, you slide backwards in terms of real money. And the problem is from an employer's perspective too, she's, she is now resentful of that. And you actually don't want, you know, I'm an employer. I don't want people working for me who are resentful of the fact that I underpay them or don't pay them enough. I actually want them to feel that they're fairly compensated so that they're incentivized to work hard for me so that they're happy to go the extra yard or whatever, you know? So actually employers don't want to screw you over on pay, the good ones, because they want you to be happy. They want you to stay for the long term. And so I just would encourage people to think about it from both sides of the story. You know, often we think the employer has all the power. You have power too. You know, you're bringing value. If you were no good at your job, they would not hire you right? They would find someone else or they would sack you. So 
if you've got a job and you're pretty good at your job, then make no mistake, you're adding value, right? And that value deserves to be compensated. Now that's so true. So when you were talking, I was thinking about the whole idea of like, you know, when people dance uh, or they do a particular exercise, it's called like muscle memory, right? So the more you do what it is, you get into that environment, you put on certain clothing or you're yes. certain music, then all of that comes back. So I like to encourage women to negotiate anyway, even if you don't win. And I would re reframe what winning means, because for me, winning could be just the fact that you spoke up and advocated for yourself in a negotiation. Mm -hmm. Even if you didn't get the outcomes that you wanted, you should reward yourself for the fact that you spoke up. So I hope that that client of yours learned that six years ago, yeah, I didn't say anything, but I'm not going to repeat that pattern. I'm going to change that story and change that muscle memory. I hope she is doing that. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's true, Beth, we shouldn't. And, and what's interesting, you know, that very first, when you graduate college or when you enter the workforce, that very first negotiation is actually very pivotal. I didn't negotiate my first offer. My very first offer was a journalist role. I think it was about $28,000. Um, I thought that was so much money. $28,000. I didn't negotiate it. I was just so excited. And I said, yes, straight You're away. happy to have a job. <laughs> happy to have a job. And that was a big mistake, Beth. Because we know because of retirement savings, because of inflation, et cetera, because of that failed negotiation at the start of my career, it's likely that I will now retire with about half a million dollars less than a colleague who did negotiate then because of that incremental difference that that will make over the course of their you know, 30, 40, 50 year career. However, it was a mistake, but I don't regret the fact that I didn't do that because I've learned from that. And now I will tell anyone who wants to listen when they're graduating, make sure you negotiate, even if I'd got them up to 29,000 or 30,000. You know, it doesn't seem like a lot, but incrementally it does make a really big difference. And so to your point, Beth, anyone who's listening, if you feel like you missed an opportunity, you could have negotiated better, that's okay, right? Because those are all learning opportunities to reflect on and think, gee, I'll never do that again. Or maybe you had a success and you think, oh, I'm really going to follow that pattern that worked really well for me. So it's, it's, it's a learning journey, isn't it, throughout your career, Beth? Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad you started telling stories because I want to ask you for some more. So if you can give some examples or one or two examples of some successes you've had, whatever type, however big or small they were in your negotiations and some of the challenges or failures that you've learned from, that would be great. Oh, wow. So many to think of. Um, so here's one thing that I like to encourage everyone to do. So, you know, your salary is a pretty big negotiation, buying a house or a car, pretty big negotiations in your life, right? I always love to encourage people to start really small. So for example, one thing you can do, maybe you're going to be booking a weekend away with some friends on Airbnb, for example. So I just always encourage people when you're booking, when you're sending a message to the host, um, just say, hey, you know, your property looks beautiful. We'd love to come away. I noticed that it's $900 for the two days. I was just wondering, is there any room to move on that price? Maybe they say, forget it. The price is the price is the price. Or maybe they say, you know what? We could do $850 if you book today. Yeah. Great. You know, and it's to your point, Beth, about that muscle memory. So what we're trying to do, it's the same if you're, if you're a dancer and you practice all the time, if you are a marathon runner and you practice all the time, the first marathon is a disaster and it gets better and better and better. And it's like, if I wanted massive biceps, I'd do this at the gym and nothing would happen for a week or two or two months. And then slowly we get more toned. Slowly that bicep will get bigger and bigger and bigger because it's muscle memory. So it's the same thing with negotiation. So I want you to ask the question, 
on Airbnb. You can be polite. You don't have to be rude and they can say no, but you can ask the question because guess what? Even if they say no, the world does not stop spinning. It doesn't, you know, like it's fine to ask the question. It's the same thing with, with your credit card. Maybe you pay a fee on your credit card. I ring my credit card company every single year and ask them to refund it. And every single year they either refund it or credit my account with the equivalent in points because I get points on my credit card. Mm -hmm. You might have a cell phone. Ring the cell phone company, ask them if there's a better deal that they can do. Uh, you know, an exercise that I give people in our Pet Talker programs, this is going to make some of your listeners feel a bit uncomfortable, Beth. But I say to them, you know, go to the supermarket, grab your favorite candy, head up to the checkout and just say, hey, how are you? I wanted to grab these M&Ms. Um, and just wanted to ask the question, could you give me a discount? <laughs> and then you're going to say nothing. We're going we're to get very um, comfortable with silence and we're just going to leave it up to the employee at the supermarket to respond. And nine times out of 10, Beth, they're going to say, um, no, there's no discount. And that's okay. You either buy the M&Ms or you say, oh, thanks anyway, maybe next week. And away, and away you walk, right? You're probably never going to see them again. It's going to be very awkward. But you're training yourself that it is okay to ask. It's okay for them to say no, but it's okay for you to ask. And you know what's interesting, Beth? I reckon maybe one in 10, one in 20 of our students, the checkout person will often look at them a little bit quizzically, but sometimes they'll say, we have a pension, a discount. I guess we could give you that. Or one of my students, um, she was told we have a 5% student discount. I could apply that to your candy. So, you know, sometimes you get lucky. Um, but the point is, it's okay to ask, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes it's those baby steps in very small, fairly inconsequential settings of a negotiation perspective that it's like a really good opportunity to practice. Because then when you're going in negotiating six-figure salary deals, that muscle memory, to your point, Beth, is a lot stronger and your confidence um, in asking the question is more significant. Yeah. You know, Maggie, you mentioned silence, right? You make yes. the and then there's silence. And that's so important because so many times people ask and then they start talking themselves out of it. So the other person doesn't even have to say anything. You say, well, I'd like, well, actually, you know, you can make it less than, and then, and then, then you've talked yourself out of it. So it's like, <laughs> I didn't have to do anything, right? You did everything. So that silence is so uncomfortable. There's somebody I knew once who uh, was starting her career as a coach and uh -huh. she was very nervous. She had been in the public education system for many, many years and just informally had been coaching people. So uh, there was like a moment of truth and, and the person said, well, what do you charge? And then she, she had a coach. She hired a coach to teach her how to negotiate salary. So she named a number and she just sat there and she said it felt like days were going by. She yeah. was sweating profusely. She just couldn't believe it. And the person turned around and said to her, well, can you come two days a week? And so she was shocked. So not only did she get the gig, but she also got two days. And then he said to her, you live on the west side, right? In New York City. Yes. Do you know where the heliport is? And she said, yes, because I want to fly you up to Connecticut. So not only did she have the coach right, for salary negotiations, she got more than she expected. She got two days a week and she got flown there in a helicopter. So it that silence, as uncomfortable wow. it is, it works so well for her. 
Well, listen, I wish that for all of your listeners, Beth, the next time they negotiate, one of the perks is that they get helicoptered to work every day. Why not? It's funny you say that. I remember once, Beth, years ago, back when I was living in Australia, I've been in New York City for six years, but when I was living in Australia, my fiance and I were driving somewhere and he was negotiating um, for for a contract he was doing at the time. So it was on speakerphone. And so I just happened to be in the car. Anyway, he'd thrown out this outrage. I thought it was outrageous, this outrageous number. Good for him. And he was just kind of like, whatever. Like he didn't really need the work. He just sort of thought he'd put it out there. So he threw out this number and I sort of almost vomited. It was such a big number. And then, um, and he, and it was for two days a week work. So he threw out this number and he's like, yep. Yeah, so that's the rate for two days a week. And then he said nothing. Yeah. And if it was me, I would have been like, yeah, so this is the number and it's for two days a week. So obviously you can pro-rata it. So obviously it's not actually that. So, you know, when you when you split it into two days, it's not blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so he got off the call and I said to him, so is that number for the two days a week or is that for full-time and they'll pro-rata that to two days? And he said, I don't know. I, I went, what do you mean? He goes, well, I don't know. He's like, I'm happy if they pro-rata it. I'm very happy with that number if they pro-rata it. He said, I'm even more happy if they want to pay me that number just for the two days a week. But he said, I'll let them decide. And he right. said, you know, he, he gave me a really good piece of advice. He said, you can't negotiate with yourself. Right. He said, let them make the decision. And sure enough, Beth, the first paycheck came through and it was that crazy number for the two days a week. Whereas if I, back then, this is before I'd started my company, if I had been doing that, I would have done myself out of 60% of the, the rate. Right. So, you know, silence, as you mentioned, Beth, is so powerful. Let them come back to you. If they've got a problem, they can say, we'd love to work with you, Beth, but we need you to move on rate. Yeah. You can make that decision, you know, but let them come back to you. Yeah. So what was it that helped you change or have you changed in some of your negotiation, like those challenges you talked about, about not asking or talking yourself out of something like, how did you shift? What did you do that helped you shift a little bit in your negotiation? You know, it was really, I had an experience, Beth, back when I was a, when I was a journalist, uh, I was pretty naive back then. And I kind of thought the world was a very equal place. And it wasn't until sort of midway through my career that was one of my old male bosses, actually. He said to me, Maggie, you know, you're getting paid a lot less than the others. And I said, what? He said, yeah, you should have negotiated better. Those were his words. You should have negotiated better. And I found out that actually my pay and conditions were quite different to the blokes who were doing the same job as me, right? And so I'm grateful for that former boss for being very honest with me. And so I would say to all of your listeners, you know, one of the most powerful things you can do to become a better negotiator and to better strategically, you know, steer your career is to start talking openly about your benefits, about your salary, et cetera, with colleagues, with trusted friends and family, right? Because the more information that you have, the more that you start to see, oh my goodness, that's possible for me, or wow, I'm actually doing really well, or wow, I'm actually very underpaid. You know, so for me, it was the experience of others and others being generous and sharing information with me that really helped me um, in my negotiation journey. And there's actually um, a woman based at another educational institution in the United States, Beth, and she gave me some good advice too. She said, you know, women are actually great collective negotiators. Um, And I believe that there's research that shows that we're actually better negotiators collectively. But when it comes to negotiating for ourselves individually, perhaps we're not as good in general terms as our male colleagues. And so actually you can trick yourself. So when she negotiates for her salary, she says, well, it's actually not about me. 
It's about me, my husband, my three kids, my seven grandkids, my two horses, my three dogs, and the next generation of women academics. And that is the framing that she takes into every salary negotiation because she says it gives her confidence. And in some ways she's like, I almost feel obliged because she says, if I actually don't fight for what I'm worth and the value that I'm adding, I'm doing a disservice to my colleagues who will come after me, you know, in the years to come. And so I would leave, you know, that might be a helpful framing for some of your listeners today too. Like if you don't advocate for yourself, the person who takes your role in five years or three years or 10 years time, actually you're doing them a disservice, you know? So we actually all have a responsibility to pay it forward um, and to advocate and negotiate as best as we can for ourselves to support the next colleague who comes after us as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you said that because it is true that research shows that women are more comfortable, which, you know, mm-hmm. negotiation can be uncomfortable sometimes, but women are more comfortable advocating for others. And you see that, let's say, like when women are mothers, right, that they're out there fierce for their kids, like do not mess with yes. there. But when it comes to advocating for themselves, they're a little bit less. So realizing that you might physically be that only person in the room negotiating, but there is a whole mass of people behind you depending on you to negotiate for them. Because if you don't, you're setting the base for everybody else to come afterwards much differently. That's really true. It's hard too, Beth, isn't it? You know, like if you've grown up in, like my mom's a teacher and to me, nurses and teachers, I think are the most important jobs in the world. And it's really, you know, I remember when I was a journalist and I was earning probably double what my mom would have ever earned in her career. And that, like, I still struggle with that. And now I earn significantly more. And I still just think in some ways I, I feel, you know, a lot of my clients say like, who am I? to ask for that salary? Who am I to, to command $250,000? One of my colleagues is um, negotiating right now for a salary that's got a four in front of it. One of my coaching clients, she earns 750,000 package, you know, and she's not even an SVP. She's at the VP level. And so I want to say those numbers to people listening, because these are salaries that women just like you are getting paid. And sometimes because, you know, maybe we grew up in a family of teachers or we grew up in a low socioeconomic background, we don't have a lot of role models who are earning a lot of money. So it can sometimes be very hard for us to think that it's okay to ask for that or that we could ever be worth that amount of money. You know, So I would encourage you to make sure that you surround yourself with a few people who are a couple of steps ahead and who can share with you what they're earning because there is a lot of money to be made right? in all industries, actually. You might have to pivot and make a few changes, but it is very possible. You know, it is possible. I know it sometimes seems like it's not, but it is, right? So find a community of people to support you, to believe in you so that you can get there too. Because it's hard if you if you didn't grow up in a family where people earn a hell of a lot of money, it can be really hard to start to realize and appreciate that that's possible for you as well. Yeah, it's really good. So I'm thinking about, as you were saying that, Maggie, that sometimes women feel uncomfortable because of the social messages that we've received, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not right. We should give back and we need to be giving and nurturing and all that, which is all true. That's all fine. Not mm-hmm. taking that away. But I was just thinking about the relationship between earning the money or earning the resources, whatever they are, or opportunities, and that you can also share with others. So I'm not saying share your salary necessarily, but I'm saying that there are other ways of giving back and other ways of totally. giving without sacrificing yourself and your own salary and your own compensation and your own conditions. You know, I always say that, um, like I'm out there in the streets working with people and I'm fine, but I'd like certain comforts too, you know, and I have to make sure that I have those comforts so I can be my best self when I show up into different situations there. 
So I just wanted to ask you some more about either challenges you've had. Mm. Like, how did you make that shift from journalism to Pep Talk Her? Like, what was happening in your journalism world? Yeah. Did you want to shift over? Yeah, well, it was frustration, honestly, Beth. Like, I was frustrated that I was getting paid less because I naively had thought the world was an equal place. And when I raised the pay gap, um, the media company I worked for at the time, they said to me, Maggie, um, okay, well, if you don't like it, you can quit or you can take us to court. Um, now, this was a few years ago, not excusing the behavior. That was a radical choice. Yeah. Fairly radical. Yeah. So I got a lawyer, Beth. That's what I did. I got a lawyer. <laughs> because, you know, I just very, I felt like, I, I really felt a responsibility, actually, Beth. At that time, I was single. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have children. I had savings in the bank account. So I kind of, I honestly just felt a little bit like, well, screw you guys. Like, because if I was pregnant, if I had a mortgage, if I was the primary breadwinner, I wouldn't have had maybe the opportunity to stand up. And I very much felt like I had to say something for the next female journalist who was hired by this company, because I thought if they get away with this, they're going to perpetuate this behavior because they think that it's acceptable. And I don't think it is acceptable. The law also doesn't think it's acceptable, but unfortunately, even though it is illegal to pay people less because of their gender, often you have to get a lawyer to prove that that, that is the case, right? And, and I'm sure that that's happened, happened, unfortunately, to a lot of your listeners as well. And I don't wish a legal battle on anyone because it's incredibly stressful. Um, but anyway, so long story short, I sort of had that encounter, I suppose. And then I became really interested in what could I do to be part of the change? And so I, you know, stayed in journalism for a little bit longer, but I had a side hustle, Beth. I built up a business on the side. I had a media training company that sort of brought in some money so that I had a bit of a safety net so that eventually I could leave journalism to focus full time on figuring out how the app and tech and coaching could combine to help individual women to close that pay gap for themselves. Because as you know, Beth, from the work that you've done, when we look at the gender pay gap, when we look at the leadership gaps that we see in corporate America and across all of the Western world, you know, it takes a bunch of different levers. We need government policy to shift. And we're seeing that incrementally. We need business policy and behavior to shift. But I also think that there is a space at the grassroots, right? Like while we are waiting for the world to catch up and for some of these biases to be frankly bred out through generations, there are still things that you and I can do that will change the outcomes for us. And there is advice that we hope to impart to everyone today that you can use to go forward in your negotiations, right? So that incrementally, all those factors working together, it's my hope that collectively that will actually um, lead to that shift towards equality happening a little bit sooner, I hope, than, as I say, the 100 plus years that, you, that the UN is predicting at the moment. Goodness, well, thank you for that example. Yeah, Maggie, so it's really nice. It's an example of women holding up women, right? Mm -hmm. And then opening the door and supporting each other and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And if women really are collectively relationally oriented, then that mm -hmm. just makes perfect sense to do that. Yeah. That's been great. Is there anything else you wanna add about negotiation that I haven't asked about? Well, you know, one thing that's interesting, Beth, and, I, and I'd, I'd love to know if you're seeing this with the corporate partners that you work with too. You know, Pep Talker very much started out as a consumer business. And that's a big part of what we do is supporting individual professional women. But interestingly, you know, more than half of the work that we do now, Beth, is with companies. So, you know, we work with, you know, Salesforce, we work with UBS Bank, we work with Microsoft, brands like that, who are actively, actively supporting their um, female talent because they want to see more women rise through the ranks. And I think that's a bit of a shift because I feel like maybe 10 or 20 years ago, you know, companies maybe 
externally facing sort of wanted to shift the gap, but weren't really doing anything about it. I'm noticing now, which is great, that these companies really are investing in the upskilling and in the sponsoring of female talent to jump into more senior roles. Um, and I think that's a really good thing and I'm excited and I love supporting them. But I wonder, have you noticed that in your corporate work as well, Beth? There is a shift. So there's two ways I see it. One is that it's still for some places ticking the box. Okay, there was a woman okay. tick, you got that, made that uh, adjustment. But then I think there are others who really see the deeper value of having diversity at the table in multiple ways and right. having gender diversity is another way of doing that. So um, by investing in different people in your organizations, let's say women, then having them rise through the ranks and also supporting them all along the way, because I think organizations have been better at recruiting. And so they're better at the numbers in who they're recruiting. So they're recruiting more women and you can see women enter, but they don't make it up the ranks because they don't have the right mentorship or support or whatever it is. And that the model of success is still very masculine in many ways. So I have seen a shift in there, but I'd like to see more and more. So it's not just bringing them in and getting kudos for that particular number or just checking a box, but really seriously integrating and understanding that innovation. And we have to continuously innovate because the world is constantly changing and yeah. very complex that having a richer conversation at the table because you have multiple perspectives because different people bring different ideas is just benefiting everybody in the long run, short and long run. So I hope that more and more people mm -hmm. do continue on that trend. I agree. I yeah. hope so too. And, you know, the other thing that I think is really interesting, because I get a lot of, you know, we're on petrol curves on all the social media um, and we get a few haters. I'm sure you get a few haters in your inbox too, Beth, who say, you know, the gender pay gap's not real, blah, 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 blah. We know the data shows us that it is real. But the other thing that I think is really interesting, if you're a capitalist, if you own shares, if you have a retirement fund of some description, you actually should be in favor of this because we know that companies that have diversity at the leadership table, they actually return better return on investment um, to investors. You know, they're more profitable. They're better at pivoting through um, significant changes in the economy and stuff like that. So it's actually, it's not even a warm and fuzzy thing. It's not a nice to have. There's a, there's a financial imperative here that everyone, if you're interested in that profit motivator, everyone should be in favor of it, right? Because we know that the decision-making process and um, the profit-making ability of companies is significantly better when there are diverse voices at that leadership table. So it, it kind of boggles the mind that, that, that people still haven't caught up to that, Beth, but we'll get there eventually. We'll get there. Hi, I wanted to follow up on the wonderful conversation Maggie Palmer and I had just a minute ago and to highlight something she said that I can also connect to my book, New Story, New Power, a Woman's Guide to Negotiation. One of the wonderful points that Maggie brought up is that when she works with women to try to have different types of negotiations, most specifically to increase their salary, either if they're already in a position or to go on to a job interview, and then when it comes down to what are the actual compensation packages and so on, how to negotiate more strongly for themselves. And she said she looks for the patterns, right? Look for the patterns and tries to rewrite what some, some of those patterns are. And this reminded me very much about one of the points I make in the book, which is about the narratives, the social scripts that we have in our head, the personal stories that we tell 
ourselves about who we are and what we are and who we are in relation to other people. So one of the nice things she talked about was how women have to change that narrative, that script that's in their head in order to advocate for themselves more strongly and more effectively, especially when it comes to compensation. And what I talk about in the book, which is related to that, are different types of techniques to first uncover what are those stories that are in our heads? What are those stories that are influencing how we negotiate? And to really think about transforming or transcribing, changing the story that holds you back and replacing it with a story that propels you forward. So I hope that you think about the influences on you and the stories you tell yourself about who you are as a person negotiating, as a woman negotiating, and that you can also negotiate for something better for yourself. Thank you.